Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Hey everyone, Yin here. I'm a partner at MCJ Collective, and I host this podcast series called The Skilled Labor Workforce, where we amplify the voices of people who are on the front lines of rewiring our physical infrastructure. Today's guest is James Sedlak, who currently leads operations and community engagement at Kodama Systems, a startup developing automated ways of thinning overcrowded forests and utilizing low-value biomass, which we'll learn more about in the episode. From 2019 to 2021, James was a wildland firefighter for three seasons working on fire suppression and mitigation in the El Dorado National Forest. He has also worked on climate resilience projects for local and state agencies in California, such as the Governor's Office of Planning and Research and the Tahoe Conservancy. In this episode, we get into the nitty-gritty of the day of the life of a wildland firefighter and learn about the future of what firefighting will entail. This conversation has made me so much more deeply appreciative and grateful of the work being done around mitigation and suppression of fires. Buckle in. This is a good one. And with that, James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Yin. I really appreciate it. And it's an honor to be on the show. All right. So let's dive in. We have a lot to learn about you as a person and what you do as a profession. And so first things first, tell us a bit more about you. Who are you? Where did you grow up? And how did you find your way to become a wildland firefighter? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> I'll start by saying currently I work at Kodama Systems, leading their operations and community engagement. And I joined working for Kodama because I'm passionate about working in natural resources and you know making a big impact with my work. I'm relatively, I would say, new to the West Coast. I moved out here about four and a half years ago with the purpose of getting a job in wildland firefighting. After college, I worked in New York City for a few years as a paralegal, thinking I would go to law school, but realized that wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I took some time off to travel. And on that journey, I reconnected with nature and felt a new calling to do some kind of public service. And I remember reading about new career paths and stumbling upon what wildland firefighting was and felt like it was the perfect marriage of public service and and working in nature. And so when I got home from traveling, I packed up all my bags from the East Coast, right outside New York City, and moved out West to get a job in wildland fire. And, and a bit farewell to a potential legal career and going to law school? Or is that maybe yeah. still on the books at some later point? Oh, no, it was long <laughs> forgotten. Right when I hit Route 80, and I crossed from New Jersey to Pennsylvania, I didn't think about it again. I'm so curious on your travels, like were there certain points that really cemented in you how important it was to work in kind of forestry? It was just kind of a nerve-wracking journey and throughout the drive and the process. I was nervous about the application process and meeting all these potential crews and hiring officers and interviewing along the drive out west. But at the same time, I felt some kind of reconfirmation that this was the right path as I was driving through all these beautiful like natural landscapes and kind of taking it all in. It kind of felt like a, a really 
good new chapter for me. And when you look back on your childhood, I'm going to ask what feels like a stereotype. Like, did you play with fire trucks? Like, was there some seed in you from an early age that made you attracted to doing this type of work? Not really. I mean, I grew up outdoors going camping and hiking and I had a typical appreciation for the outdoors and and having fun. I learned early on some really good principles about like taking care of the land and being a good steward from some certain role models in my life. So I think that kind of always stuck with me. All right. Very cool. So now you're you're driving across the country. You land in Northern California. What what happens next? Oh, wow. So I got to California and I first thing was I took a job on the way out here. I took a job in Oregon because people that I, I networked with said, if you get a job, take it because it's hard to get your foot in the door. And so I took a job in Oregon, but then I met my who is now my fiance at a ski lease in Lake Tahoe along the way. So she was a special person then, and I figured it was important to try to stay around California. So I ended up getting a job on the El Dorado National Forest, which is a lot closer to her in San Francisco and Lake Tahoe. Got it. So you, you drove and then you took a job in Oregon and then came down to Tahoe thinking, maybe I'll stay in Oregon. And then you met this person who is, and we should say it's what, T-minus couple of weeks before your wedding at the time of this recording. And so you decided, like, I met a person, I'm going to stick around in California instead of ending up in somewhere else. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Nice. Nice. For those who don't know about the Eldorado Forest, where is it and how big is it? Yeah, the Eldorado National Forest is located in the Sierra Nevada Mountains in California. It's kind of sandwiched in between Route 80 and Route 50 in between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe. It's about 600,000 acres, I want to say. Okay, there's a non-trivial amount of land. And like, how big of a crew is needed to cover that entire area? And is there like some type of ratio between number of people to acreage? I don't think there's an exact ratio, but typically national forests are split up into ranger districts. And each ranger district has a certain amount of resources and crews that it staffs up. And as far as crew goes, I mean, there are different crews from your typical like forestry technician crews. There's range management and monitoring. There's wildland fire. There's other like recreation crews. There's other like patrols. So yeah, there are a lot of different personnel that kind of work on, on the different districts. Okay. And maybe we should take a step back. Um, certainly it would be helpful for me to, when we talk about firefighting as a profession in general, there's the, what we think about like the red trucks and the cities. And then there's, there's what you do. Maybe help us distinguish the different types of firefighting categories there are. And then we'll deep dive on the wildland firefighting. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like you said, there's city and structure fire that typically work in municipal governments and cities and towns. And then there's your like, wildland fire crews that have those kind of ugly green trucks and engines. And there are also private crews out there that make up part of the workforce. And so you typically have a split between your city and structure and then your strictly wildland. Although there are plenty of city and structure fire crews that do wildland firefighting or are capable of it. Like a scenario there would be there's a huge fire that is adjacent to Santa Cruz, California, and we don't have enough people. So we'll bring in some of the structured or municipal firefighting capacity to help out. Yep. Yep. 
Gotcha. And then private crews, can you talk about that a bit? Definitely something new I'm learning. And is it also just kind of the supplementing capacity when needed? Yeah, I think private wildland firefighting crews are sometimes they're used for just private landowner projects or fires, although that's kind of a touchy subject because there's like liabilities and, and other complications involved with that. But a lot of times we will see private crews on some of the federal and state incidents that my crew was on. So they get a fair share of work during fire season on federal and state wide wildfires. Cool. Thank you for educating me on that aspect of the industry. Let's jump back into wildland firefighting. So how do you get started in a job like that if you have kind of zero baseline knowledge and a passion for wanting to do this work? Yeah, that's a great question. I started out by just calling all of the hiring officers I, I could find online and just asking them for time to teach me about how to go about the job application process, which can be actually kind of challenging, especially navigating the federal, and I'm talking just wildland firefighting from a, a federal perspective, working for the Forest Service or some of the other agencies like Bureau of Land Management, Department of Fish and Wildlife, National Park Service, they all have wildland fire fighting crews. You spent three seasons working for the U.S. Forestry Service, correct? As the federal agency. Yeah, the Forest Service. So to get a job with the, I'll just say, to get a job with the Forest Service, you have to go through USA Jobs, which is their like hiring platform, which is kind of cumbersome. And if you check the wrong box, then you could just disqualify yourself from a job application, even though it's just a formality. So things like that. And I was coached up on that. And I took my time learning USA Jobs. And then through some networking, I was told to, if I want to you know, work in wildland fire fighting, I better start working out and try to do some like basic courses. I think it's called Basic 40 nowadays. And it's your typical entry-level classes that teach you things about like fire and operational safety, like fire behavior, communications and situational awareness, kind of like your intro to wildland firefighting. And then what happens after you take those courses? Like, is there an interview process? What does that interview process entail? Yeah. So I took my course in Salida, Colorado. I forget the name of the, of the like fire camp it was. So I took my course and that was right after I had applied to all of these positions through USA Jobs. And then the next best thing you can do is go meet the crews and hiring officers that you applied to and get to know them and let them meet you face to face. And that's what I did. And then I, I ended up meeting with the engine captain on the El Dorado National Forest, where I took my first job. And after a couple more months of waiting to hear back, they offered me a position and I took it. Is there a formalized interview process where you're sitting down there asking questions and how you respond and how you behave in certain settings? And is there maybe a physical component where they say, put out this fire in as little time as possible? Is there something like that? There is no like real in-person test to trial your, your firefighting skills. But in your resume, you're told to put any and all information about any of those skills that could be used. And so that gives them a pretty good picture of your background. And the interview process is, I think it was one or two phone calls. They kind of asked your typical set of questions about how you deal with stress in certain situations and what your like working style is like and kind of your typical interview questions. Nothing too 
specific about wildland fire. Gotcha. They also have the record of you're taking those courses and your performance in those courses as well. Yes. To go off yeah. of. Yeah. Very cool. Well, glad that you hit the gym and were able to be in like top physical condition to be able to start the role. So what does career progression look like for USFS for doing firefighting? Do you start off like only being able to do certain types of things? And then where do you graduate to? Yeah, I think it, it really depends on where you're interested in or what direction you want to go. I'll say you typically start off as what's called a GS3. And that's just the like occupational series and kind of grade, like entry level is a GS3 employee. And so, you know, as an entry level employee, you're coming in at a GS3 making somewhere, it might now be like around $15 an hour. And you go through a training program with your crew and you kind of learn up on all the things that you need to know to be a good team player on that crew. And then you can start opening up what's called a task book. And a task book allows you to pursue different qualifications and, and certifications within your like wildland fire career. And you typically have to work towards completing your task book by doing things out in the field on incidents under supervision. And so the next task book that I opened was, I came in as a, a GS3, but my qualification was a wildland firefighter type two. And so my next step up would be a wildland firefighter type one. So you open up that task book and then you go through a whole bunch of different assignments and tasks that you have to do under supervision, like leading a a small squad of, of firefighters on an incident, doing necessary paperwork. There's a variety of things. And then, you, you know, from there, after you get your firefighter one, you can look into more or higher leadership positions like becoming a squad boss and then maybe a captain superintendent and then aside from that there are different qualifications within those rankings like you can open a task book to become a certain incident commander for a, a certain size of a fire or incident so it would be ic5 is like your smallest fire that you can be in charge of and you're the one ordering resources from dispatch calling the shots and managing crews and you know that goes up to being a level one incident commander that's in charge of some of these huge fires with thousands of personnel that are like really complex. So there's a steady progression. And overall, like these qualifications, they take time, you know, especially as you get further into your career and sometimes to level up. So say if you get the qualification, but if you want to apply for say the next pay grade, say from a GS4 to a 5 or a GS5 to a 6, sometimes there's no position available on your crew or to apply for. So sometimes there could be some stagnation and it could be competitive getting certain positions or qualifications. Fascinating. It sounds like we got the whole enchilada, the quick and dirty version of the whole enchilada on career progression within wildland firefighting. So in your three seasons as a wildland firefighter, where in that career progression were you wanting to get to? And tell us about the role that you had most recently before you left. Yeah. So I, I initially entered the Forest Service with the aspiration of becoming a smoke jumper. And smoke jumpers, for anyone who doesn't know, is they're sort of like the Navy SEALs of wildland firefighting. They typically get deployed to very remote fires by airplane. They jump, hence their name, smoke jumpers. They 
jump out of planes, parachute into fires, and they're fully self-sufficient, and they run their own show. Typically, they work in small teams, but they also they work on other wildfire incidents as well. And to me, that just seemed like the top of the top to like push for. How long would it take for someone to start off at a GS3 entry level to becoming a smoke jumper? It could take a, only a few seasons, depending on how well you do. And if you just, if you have the right qualifications, and I believe rookie smoke jumpers can, they can be GS5s. I think that might be the lowest GS level. So shorter than you might think. So I came into the Forest Service with that goal. And my first job was with a Type 3 engine on the El Dorado National Forest. So a crew of five people or rotating five to six people that basically work with this small fire truck with like five to maybe 600 gallons of water. And we did a lot of suppression assignments, implementing hose lays and kind of using water to put out the fire. And while on that crew, we also served as like the first response for our, our local like ranger district. So that was in Georgetown, California. And if there was a vehicle accident somewhere along those remote roads, we were typically dispatched as the first like emergency medical response. And so after that first season of working as a technically a forestry aide is the entry level like terminology. I talked to my captain and I asked him, I was like, hey, like I'd really be interested in, in trying out for the hotshot, the Eldorado hotshot crew. And he put me in touch with their superintendent and the captains. And it didn't work out where I tried out for them that year. But the following year, I applied to be on the crew. And then I met with them, interviewed, and things went well enough for them to bring me on board. And what does hotshot mean? So I think hotshot actually gets its name because traditionally this type of wildland firefighter or the crew has gone into the hottest parts of the fire and done the hardest work. But to me, hotshots are elite groups of or highly skilled groups of 20 wildland firefighters that are very well trained in vegetation management with hand tools, burning operations, and they're critical resources for managing wildfires. We're going to take a quick break so you can hear me talk more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Ian here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, let's get back to the show. I think this is a good jumping off point to talking about the day-to-day on the job and what that's like. And so so I'm sure there's no same day-to-day in the type of work that you do with the people that you do it with. And so maybe just talk to us about what it's like in a season and maybe help us define what does it mean by a fire season? 
Yeah, sure. I'll start off by saying, typically, what was the case when I was working for the Forest Service, fire season in California, at least, was around May, starting in May through November. Basically, the snowpack melts, things get dry, and things are typically, they're ripe for fires around May, June. And then we don't get a lot of precipitation until around November. So that was your fire season. Nowadays, it's looking more like fire year, especially in Southern California and other parts of the U.S. Things are still dry going into January, February even. So the threat of wildfire lingers throughout the year or for most of the year. When you come on in May, you've got like two weeks of critical training where it's just really, you know, really intense hiking, pushing the limits and, and training the crew up to be in like the best shape that they can be to basically have six, you know, seven months of nonstop firefighting. Almost all of our work or time was spent on wildfire suppression. We would go to incidents mostly in California, but sometimes you'd get called up to incidents in different states because as a federal resource, you know, you can be deployed all over the country. So I think we went up to Alaska, down to Arizona, over to Idaho. So during fire season, I mean, you're traveling around working on fires for like two, maybe three weeks at a time. And then pulling shifts, like your typical shifts are like 14 to 16 hours. And then you're expected just to get your eight hours of sleep and then kind of return, repeat, do it all again. But sometimes shifts, they extend into the wee hours of the night that can run 24, even more hours, depending on the situation or and what you have to do during that time to meet your objectives and make progress. And so over the span of two to three weeks on a, typically two weeks on an assignment or on a fire, you could have some really crazy shifts or you have some normal shifts. It all kind of depends. But overall, you're kind of going through this process of two weeks out on fire assignments. You get two to three days off at home to rest and recover. They call it R&R. And then you come back to your crew or your station. And then in the height of fire season, you typically have another resource order that calls your crew onto another fire. And it's just, is that on repeat for six, six months or so? Oh my God. I was going to ask you a question about what are some of the things that wildland firefighters do that may not seem obvious. And this clearly jumps out as one, just like how rigorous and intense the role is and physically and i'm imagining also just mental health wise it could take a toll tell me more about that sure so that's why preseason training getting your body in top shape is really important that way you come into your critical training and you're pushed a little further to really be at optimal productivity mode if you will you can hike well you can carry a chainsaw and you can deal with the heat you can just have a good sustained cardiovascular endurance, like things like that. So you come into the season in tip-top shape, and then throughout the season, your body just takes a beating. And there are obviously physical like, safety concerns just from like doing the arduous work of hiking around, carrying things. You know, you could trip over branches. There are loose rocks and you know dead trees that fall down. You can get really bad cuts, even. Bees can be really, I guess, annoying. And you're working around like heavy equipment machines on a lot of these fire assignments where things are loud and it's chaotic and at times or it's dark and there's just a lot going on. And so there's always these hazards. And so it's like super important to keep really good situational awareness 
And aside from, you know, the physical concerns of the job, the mental hazards and the mental health issues are also really, really important to consider. People that have kids or being away from family can be really tough for a lot of folks. And a lot of times it's tough to balance your responsibilities with your friends and family and your assumed commitment to the crew. Because if the crew doesn't have enough numbers for staffing, then it's difficult for them to go to wildfire incidents and do their work. And if people can't go to wildfire incidents and work, that's money not getting into their bank accounts and that ends up affecting you know, their livelihoods. And so it's tough. It's tough to deal with all those stressors and just the things you like you might see or deal with, whether it's totally burnt lands, burnt homes and towns, dead animals. It's like a lot of these things and some of the trauma of like near misses, I think adds to a good amount of PTSD. And like, I think there's in general, just a much higher rate of suicide among firefighters than the general public. And mental health, I think is one of those things that hadn't really been talked about for a while. But thankfully, recently, there's been a push to support or improve those mental health programs. And a lot of people are stepping up to be leaders in that space and encourage folks to address it. Well, that was a lot. Thanks for sharing. And I have such a deeper appreciation for you all doing the work that you do that I think oftentimes we take for granted, we just assume that yes, like this fire is eventually going to get put out, but it comes at a cost. It sounds like a, sometimes a very heavy cost for the people that are actually on the ground doing it. What do you think are a few things that could change the industry for the better so that there's more longevity in staying in a role like this, knowing just how tense it is? Like, is there, you know, just more time off versus time on? And what are those mental health resources that you're saying are now coming to front of mind that weren't there before? Yeah, well, I think for starters, I mean, wildland firefighters could get paid more. I mean, given the amount of risk they take on and the hard, hard work that they put in, they ought to be paid more. And that's being addressed right now. And I think one of the main bills to to address that was the recent infrastructure bill that is increasing pay for wildland firefighters, working on reclassifying the job series to better allocate and address other benefits and these mental health programs. I think there's more legislation in the pipeline. I don't know if it'll pass, but overall, we need to treat this workforce better because not only are we so reliant on them, they deserve it. Yeah, I think that's all that needs to be said. They deserve it 100%. I'm so curious, just talking about workforce development some more, from a workforce development angle, what trends had you seen or are you seeing in terms of the volume of workforce coming in? So people that are expressing interest in well fair fighting versus people that are trading out of the workforce. And are we seeing a delta of people wanting to come into the industry at all? I think we're seeing more people leaving. And that's, I think, primarily because people are getting paid better. And when I say leaving, I mean leaving the federal wildland firefighting workforce. And they're leaving to go to state agencies, municipal agencies that will pay better, offer better benefits, perhaps give a slightly adjusted work-lifestyle balance. And so I think overall, from what I, I recall, it's been difficult for the Forest Service to retain its workforce. And I don't get the sense there's a lot of passion or interest to 
pursue this line of work because of the the conditions and the current benefits right now. However, I'm somewhat optimistic that things will change around workforce development because of recent legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act that I think will pump more money into programs to build up our forestry workforce on the suppression side. And that's just the suppression side, right? It's like we still need, like we're still lacking the workforce to do key mitigation efforts to combat wildfires, but we can get into that. Let's get into that. So what do we mean when we say mitigation suppression? I get fires, we got to put them out. We got to control where they burn. Mitigation means? Yeah. So mitigation is basically what you could do to prevent wildfires. And so in my mind, I'm thinking forest thinning treatments, how you deal with like community education, home hardening, anything you could do to prevent like those basically like high intensity fires that that are problematic these days. I think the Forest Service recently put out a commitment to treat 50 million acres of land in the next 10 years. But a lot of people are scratching their heads wondering, it's like, how are we going to get on track for that with such a limited workforce? I mean, we can barely keep up staffing levels for suppression. How are we going to build our, our labor pool for the mitigation work that's so desperately needed to prevent these catastrophic wildfires? Yeah. So that's good to understand about mitigation being so complementary to suppression and proactively. If we can do more on the mitigation side, we'll have, you know, hopefully less to do on the suppression side, but who's going to do the work at the end of the day? And it sounds like, you know, earlier we were talking about private fire crews. I wonder if more of those might pop up and the pay dynamics there are better. And I just wonder in general, how can we get more people like Anderson in sounds like money is three more money. Other problem is one solution. And I wonder what else there might be. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think putting more money into workforce development is good. And I, I think we can achieve more results on the mitigation side, treating more acres by developing larger like collaboratives and kind of pulling together different jurisdictions and really like, building good partnerships. But I also think there's a lot of good momentum around investing in the private sector and technology innovations that will help work alongside the workforce, especially as we grow to improve those numbers. So then we can eventually hit our target of acres treated that that we're setting out. This is a good segue to talking about trends and technology a bit more. So I'm so curious to hear your take on technology and trends, having been both on the ground, working for the federal government, as well as working now at a startup that's focused on forest restoration services. So I love to know, you know, is there anything that you're noticing about fire seasons, just looking at trends, being on the front lines, first and foremost, on fires that you were fighting three years back to the most recent fires you've been suppressing? Like, is there a difference in the speed at which they're going, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So general trends that I experienced were, well, I guess it's hard for me to call it a trend because I only, I was on, out on the front lines for a few seasons, but I noticed that fires were super intense and they were very destructive and hearing about other people in the industry that have been around for longer or in the field they would talk about the trends of, of fires growing hotter faster and harder to fight and aside from the growth of fire intensity the trend i started seeing was like an unsupported workforce and i wouldn't say a struggling workforce but just like there are issues around workforce retention that we talked about and I didn't have a whole lot of faith in the government at 
the time to kind of switch things around fast enough to address these trends of workforce development and how do we, you know, refocus our efforts on mitigation and not just suppression. So that's when I started to see like, okay, maybe or feel like I maybe I need to change gears. And then one of the the trends that I'm I'm starting to see is there's is a growing investment in mitigation efforts. I don't think it's nearly enough. I think it should be upwards of what we spend on suppression, given how important mitigation is. And within mitigation, I, I think we really need to figure out ways to thin forest and reintroduce good fire back into the landscape. And this is why I'm really excited about my current work for Kodama is because we're, we're pushing the envelope and trying to be a leader in innovation around forest restoration. And we're, we're doing that by automating machinery, we're optimizing on the ground operations, and we're developing new methods for biomass utilization. All these things are typically challenges for the forestry industry right now on the mitigation and, and thinning side. Can you get one level deeper and talk in more depth to the degree that you can about what Kodama is actually doing on the ground? I think it's fascinating what you all are, are working on. Yeah. So we're trying to learn the ins and outs of different types of operations, and we're trying to improve site connectivity to make operators and, and machines work more efficiently. It's already an industry that's like working off of super tight profit margins and we're trying to make things better for everyone. And typically a big challenge for forestry thinning operations is dealing. So you have forestry thinning operations that takes marketable timber out of, of woods reduces you know hazardous fuel loads that contribute to wildfires. So you're kind of taking away that wildfire risk, but there's still a lot of excess biomass that's either being left in the woods to burn or, or sometimes it just gets forgotten about and it decays. And we're exploring a new method and thinking for, for how do we get that excess waste biomass out of the woods? How do we do something that has value with it? And so right now we're exploring a carbon storage technology to basically take all the excess wood while it does a lot of carbon in it and store it in kind of specially designed vaults. So we're pretty excited about that opportunity. So two-pronged approach, it sounds like. One is you're helping with the mitigation efforts to complement what the federal government and state governments are doing by thinning the forest, which is very critical. So you remove all the all the excess wood that could burn and burn really fast because it's dry and all the yeah moisture has been escaped. And then on top of that, you take that excess and then put it underground to sequester carbon. Yeah, that's pretty much where we're headed. And we believe that within the forestry thinning operations, we're by typically right now forests, they're super overgrown and they're unhealthy. You've got trees that are competing against each other. Just the act of thinning is one step to get forests back into, at least Western forests that are fire adapted, to get them back into their, their kind of patchier, more diverse kind of mosaic that are more balanced. Gotcha. What you all are doing at Kodama is really, you know, there's two birds with one stone, feed two birds with one scone, depending on what analogy you like. I like plant two trees with one shovel. Oh my God. Okay. That is so much better. Two plant trees with one shovel. Yes. In addition to what you all are working on at Kodama, are there any other technology areas that you're excited about when it comes to fire suppression and mitigation? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of great work going on right now in the industry. Yeah, even from the 
traditional timber operations side. I mean, I'm starting to see heavy equipment machines that are being adapted for wildfire suppression. So these like kind of a big excavator type machines that can carry water on them and like extinguish fire with water while also using like grapples to dig and maneuver better and kind of replace the work of, of certain hand crews and personnel so they can go on to do other challenging tasks and not have to do the simpler tasks. So I'm seeing some like really cool innovations from traditional, I guess, lumber and timber operators. And then there's a lot of cool technology being developed in, I guess, the private startup space, like early detection systems and like drone technology to go put out fires like within first, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes of monitoring and really cool planning and collaboration software. You know, I think planning and collaboration among different stakeholders has been such a challenge to increase the pace and scale of restoration work because it's so hard to find common ground with different wildlife groups, communities worried about environmental justice, your landowners with like their interests. There's just a lot of competing interests. And so having good software and tools to lay all those interests out and map out different progression plans is, I think, really, really cool. And I think what's driving a big push for a lot of this technology is really strong science. I think we're getting better at like utilizing large data sets that really do a good job of, of laying out the different conditions of our forested landscapes, whether it be like certain habitats of sensitive species, like different levels of vegetation and densities of like timber stands, and just like assessing the fire risk in certain areas. So like you put all of those mapping layers together in like ArcGIS, and now you have like, you're able to prioritize and see like what areas of of the land that we need to focus on efforts. That's awesome. I think what we've covered is you have the surge of new technology that's coming into the space, technology and innovation on the software and on the hardware side. We have policy tailwinds now that hopefully will get the workforce more developed than it has been because we really, really need it. We have capital that's coming in into the private sector as well as the policy end of things that will bring more capital into from the public sectors. And the need is more than ever. You know, California has been in, was it severe critical drought? I don't forget the technical categorization, but gosh, fires aren't going to stop happening. And so what are we doing to ensuring that we, we suppress and mitigate better? One last question I have before we go, I know you got to go soon, is we're doing this recording in mid-January 2023, and there has been many atmospheric rivers just coming down on California, just lots of rain, flooding, more rain than we've seen in many years. Any thoughts on the implications that the flooding is going to have on firefighting season this year and for years to come? Yeah, so... I think with the heavy amount of precipitation that we have right now, and perhaps it's trending to be a a wet season, that could mean more vegetation growth and hence more fuels down the road for wildfires to burn. So that's one thought that comes to mind. I mean, it's, it's great that we're getting precipitation. I mean, we've needed it. We've been in a drought in California for a couple of years, few years now. So I think it's great. It's just something to be cautious of. And I think I feel like we're living in a couple of extremes right now, heavy precipitation, heavy drought. And we just need to keep the implications in mind of what that means for like a wildfire season and or 
yeah, wildfire impacts and, and things like that. But yeah, you know, fire and water have a have a really interesting relationship, and they're both really powerful natural forces that shouldn't be taken lightly. And so we'll have to see what the summer brings. All right. Well, with that, man, James, thank you for teaching us so many different nuances of the world that you live in. And thank you, obviously, goes about the same for all the work that you have done and continue to do to help us keep those fires at bay. Just do what we can to take care of the land. Yeah, That's really yeah. What, well said. what it's all about. Well said. Well said. All right. If you're interested in learning more about the day in the life of a wildland firefighter and see some pictures that James has taken, I'd highly recommend it. James wrote a piece for an organization called Earth Refuge that you can find online by typing in his name's James Sedlak, S-E-D-L-A-K, firefighting, and it's the first link that comes up. You get to see some really interesting photos and commentary from James, so highly recommend it. Thank you so much for your time and look forward to keeping in touch and seeing all the great things that you and the Kodama team are up to. Thank you, Yin. I really appreciate it. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change. And our member community to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.